Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Pistonia's cave aquarium, and right now I'm looking at a little creature called an ohm. It looks kind of like an axolotl, but longer, and they call it the human dragon or the human fish. It's such a cool creature. And in this aquarium, they talk about a lot of other cave-dwelling little critters, mostly creepy crawlies. And it's inspired me to make an episode all about all the creatures that live in caves. So let's talk about it, shall we? Hello and welcome to a very spooky episode of Little Curiosities, spooky because tis the Halloween season. I'm Kendall Long, and you may know me from a show called The Bachelor or Bachelor in Paradise, where I was on a quest for love. But on this podcast, I'm on a completely different kind of quest, the quest for knowledge. And today, I put an episode together in honor of my absolute favorite holiday, Halloween. I love dressing up. I love candy. I love everything that has to do with Halloween. When I was living in California, I used to celebrate Halloween insanely. I used to put all this work into my costume. But now that I'm living in Germany, it's not really a thing. Like Halloween is more so something that's celebrated by expats or some people in Germany, but it's not as big as it was in the States. So now I'm going to be celebrating in any way that I can, which means I'm going to be making a whole episode on things that are creepy crawly, creatures fit for ghost stories, because I have to get that Halloween thrill somewhere. So okay, today I'm talking creatures that thrive in dark, damp places, some of which have never seen the light of day. I'm talking about cave creatures. I recently went on a trip with Mitch and a couple friends to Slovenia, and we went to Postonia Caves, and it was so cool. They were like these giant, massive caves that were so big, we had to travel through them by train. There was like this little mini train that whizzed through different caverns. It was such a cool experience, and part of the cave area had this museum. It was like this little tiny museum that showed all the different animals that lived inside of caves. And one of them was an ulm, which I'll get to later in the episode, but that is what inspired this episode. That is where I took the spark in the beginning of this episode, and it is such a cool place. I really recommend for any of you to go if you want to travel anywhere. Please go to the Pistonia Caves in Slovenia. If anything, just to learn more about caves and the awesome species and why they're so special and why we should protect and preserve them. I, for one, learned a lot about cave creatures. Caves house so many unique ones. 
from the pale axolotl-looking cave dragons to spiders with whips for arms. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time. We're going to dive into this episode, dive deep into the crevices of the earth, and see what we can find. Species that live in caves may look unique enough to be called aliens, but the more correct and earthbound name they go by are troglobites. These are species that are strictly bound to underground dwellings. Another category of cave animals is trogloxines, which can live both inside a cave and outside a cave. They choose which one they go to back and forth. So those are the primary animal species I'll be talking about in this episode today. All of the critters you find brewing deep in a cave came from surface-dwelling ancestors, who one day stumbled upon the opening of a cave and thought, hey, I'll go explore in there. And maybe they got lost in the depths, confused by the various twisting caverns, and became disoriented in the pitch blackness. But either way, they were stuck in these caves, and they had to adapt, and they had to adapt fast. Because this new shadowy residence came with a completely different set of rules than above ground. Life in a cave is absolutely no joke. A lot of the animals who have gone the way of cave life must live off of little to no food, dampness, and not to mention no light. But you know what? Life finds a way. The individual adaptations of these cave dwellers show an amazing example of convergent evolution. And it's a perfect example of this because all of these animals, no matter what their ancestral background, all seem to have to make multiple adjustments to survive in the cave's no-light, low-food environment. Adjustments such as a loss or reduction of eyes, and a loss of pigment or colorlessness. An example of this convergent evolution put to work can be seen in the Moville Cave. The Moville Cave is a Romanian cave sealed off from the outside world for millions of years. It was discovered in 1986, and the animals found within it truly seemed otherworldly. What kind of adaptations take place when a cave is cut off from the outside world for 5.5 million years and the species inside are forced to adapt? Interesting ones, to say the least. On top of the fact that these animals had no means of escape, fresh airflow into the cave from the surface was also cut off, and this created a sealed-off chamber of toxic gas. So despite the fact that these conditions were inhospitable for human life, the cave was able to maintain an ecosystem of thriving species for millions of years. Because there was no natural light to speak of, the animals inside of the Mobile Cave adapted to survive off of chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis. So chemosynthesis is when organisms use the energy released by chemical reactions to make sugar. Instead of obtaining it from the sun, like all of us animals that depend on photosynthesis do, I eat a salad that is made with lettuce, and that lettuce depended on using photosynthesis to get energy from the sun so it can grow into its beautiful leaves, thus giving me energy. Much like the plants did with the sun, the animals in the Mobile Cave took the toxic gases in the air of the cave and converted it to energy. Pretty nifty trick. A nifty trick that probably took millions and millions of years to accomplish. As you could probably imagine, these kinds of conditions were prime for developing new species, and that they did. 33, in fact, that could be found in the Mobile Cave and nowhere else on planet Earth. In this way, the Mobile Cave seems kind of like an alien world to me. 
with chemosynthetic beings housing creatures never seen by man for millions of years in a seemingly unearthly environment. So cool. I see an amazing plot for, like, the next killer sci-fi movie right there. We thought they came from outer space, but they actually came from below. I don't know. That's my best impression of, like, a sci-fi intro. While I was researching this episode, another thing that it kept reminding me of was Gollum. You know, that creepy, skinny dude always wanting to get the precious from Lord of the Rings? He, too, once lived above ground as a human, and then he went underground, and he went through a bunch of changes when he transitioned from above ground to underground. He became frail with a lack of food and pale with a lack of sun. He lost pigmentation. The only thing the book and the movie got wrong in my eyes was his eyes. He had those big old honking eyes. There's no way he needs those big eyes when he's in a cave. I think more so they become really tiny, kind of like the eyes of a mole or something like that. And that would make Gollum absolutely terrifying. So maybe I'm glad they made him have big puppy dog eyes. Plus, I feel like they had to make us feel sorry for him. So those eyes really had a lot of emotion. But truly, if he was really going to be adapted to cave life, they'd be teensy-weensy. Unlike Gollum, the species within the Movil Cave have been evolving in isolation for longer than humans have existed. How's that for perspective? Way back when humans were hunting for buffalo or living in caves and probably doing cave paintings, the creatures of the Movil Cave were evolving on their own in a completely different environment. So cool to think about it that way. So because the cave had absolutely no light, all of the creatures within it have adapted to having no eyesight or pigment. They do, however, have long antennae and limbs that are used for poking around the cave's nooks and crannies in order to hunt and find food. The Movil Cave is only one example of a cut-off group of species that has evolved to thrive in specific conditions of a secluded habitat. But there are many more cave dwellers out there that flourish in the deep creases of our Earth in spaces that are seemingly out of this world, or at least under it. Before I get into more uniquely wonderful animals that live in caves, I have to answer one question. How do caves form to begin with? Okay, so there's all kinds of caves, but by far the most common cave consists of limestone, since it's able to be dissolved easily by water. Limestone primarily consists of calcium carbonate, which is made of trillions and trillions of animal shells, corals, and other fossilized shelled creatures. These animals build their shells layer upon layer with calcium carbonate secreted by their mantle, and when they die, they settle on the ocean floor, and after a whole lot of time and a whole lot of pressure, this calcium carbonate mixture is solidified into rock, aka limestone. Now, this rock is eventually brought to the surface thanks to plate tectonics, and thus the process of a cave begins. Now, limestone alone, a cave does not make. The next crucial step is rain. The water that makes up rain contains not just water, but also atmospheric gases, including carbon dioxide. When carbon dioxide dissolves, it creates carbonic acid. Now, don't worry, this acid rain isn't enough to melt us humans like the Wicked Witch of the West, but over time, it is enough to dissolve and break down limestone. This weak acid penetrates into the Earth's soil and becomes groundwater. When it hits a limestone layer, it eats it away, and over years and years, a cavity is created. Imperfections, fissures, and sinkholes create openings in these magnificent underground spectacles, and thus a cave is formed. 
And these caves can get quite big. The largest known cave by volume in the world is San Dong Cave in Vietnam. Translated into English, it roughly means Cave of the Mountain River, since the entrance has a flow of water coming from it that looks to be coming from the cave itself. It runs nine kilometers deep into the earth, and at some parts of the cave, it reaches 200 meters high and is 150 meters wide. It is said to be so big that a Boeing 747 plane could fly within it, so big that all the empty space within the cave could fit the Grand Canyon, so big that researchers estimate they could fit a whole New York City block complete with 40-story skyscrapers inside of it. So yeah, dang large. And speaking of skyscrapers, the stalagmites in the cave give New York buildings a run for their money. They tower at an impressive 80 meters high. That's taller than the Leaning Tower of Pizza. That's taller than a giant sequoia tree. That's taller than the Cinderella Castle at Disneyland. Okay, you get the picture. This cave and all the things inside of it are pretty dang giant. On a side note, this cave also has some really cool formations called cave pearls. Basically like pearls, but instead of an oyster, they're made by caves. Some get as big as baseballs. These little spheres are made from layers of calcium salts that are polished by moving water, making them appear glossy. But alas, these treasures seem only fit for a cave since when they're exposed to air, they will often degrade and appear rough. So not very pearl-like when they're brought to the surface, unfortunately. Something else especially unique and nature-made that the Sandong Cave has to offer, jungles. A few miles deep within this cave, two jungles can be found. Yes, underground jungles, and there's two of them, which just makes this cave even more giant than I already explained. I mean, when I found out that fact, I was like, there's no way. But yes, there is a way. These little secluded plant paradises are made possible by openings in the cave formed by collapsed ceilings. And these vast openings allow sunlight to stream in. These cave skylights are referred to as dolines. Something I found to be awesome slash kind of silly is that the first of the two dolines found in the Sandong Cave is called Watch Out for Dinosaurs. And after seeing the images of towering cave walls with streams of light shooting in from the darkness and plants sprouting out amongst rubble and giant boulders, I can kind of see how people would get that prehistoric vibe. It really does almost look like a portal to an ancient world that houses dinosaurs. Although there are, unfortunately, no dinosaurs in these caves. But the forest that these sinkholes allow to grow does house various endemic species like different kinds of insects and fish. And endemic means that these animals are found in this one part of the world and nowhere else. So it could be kind of like something as cool as dinosaurs. In fact, a lot of caves around the world house completely unique animals found nowhere else just because they're like little secret pockets complete with isolated ecosystems and varying climates. Like I said earlier, the unique conditions of a cave are prime for some interesting adaptations. Take, for example, the Mexican cavefish found in Central America. To adapt to caves, these little blind fish have gained taste buds in some pretty odd places, like their lips, gills, and on the underside of their heads. So basically, their head has turned into like a tongue. It's like a head tongue. And with this tongue head, it makes it much easier to find food in complete darkness. They basically just have to touch a worm, insect, or snail with their head, 
and be like, mm, that tastes like something I can eat, and they can gobble it up. Now, the surface-dwelling counterparts of these cave fish don't have a tongue head to speak of, nor do they have nearly as many taste buds. The Mexican cave fish has around three to six more taste buds. In fact, it gives them quite an advantage. An advantage that was officially analyzed in a recent study that put both of their feeding abilities to the test. Both cave and non-cave fish were placed in a cool, dark tank and then offered food one bite at a time. The goal was to see which fish could get to the food the fastest. And you know who came out as the winner? Of course, the cave fish. It was able to snag 80% of the food offered. Seeing that the caves have little to no food availability, it's actually no surprise that the cave fish was a bit more aggressive when it came to apprehending the little morsels. You know, the poor little surface fish couldn't compete with the tongue head advantage. But to be fair, it did seem the dark environment was more suited for the cave fish. And I wonder how things would have turned out if there was a bit more light shed on the situation. Maybe the cave fish would be like, oh no, blinded by the light. And then the surface fish would be like, ha, I get all the food. So you never know, the turntables can turn. Now, speaking of shedding a little bit of light on the situation, the ceilings of the Waitomo Cave in New Zealand seem to have many little spots of light to shed, but not from the sun. The source comes from glowworms, which aren't even worms to begin with. They're actually maggots of a fungus moth. Look, I gotta say it, not all long things with no arms or legs are worms or snakes, people. Now, maggots themselves don't sound so magnificent, but in the dark, in a cave, is where they truly shine. Literally. Caves are sometimes so dark, you can't even see a hand in front of your face. In a world of pitch blackness, wouldn't it be nice to have some sort of built-in flashlight? In the case of the glowworm, they have done just that, and the adapted body part responsible for brightening their path, they are butts. And their butts are quite beautiful. The place where these glowworms live in the famous Waitomo Cave is visited by tourists from all over the world, itching to get a view of the glowing worm's sparkling rear ends. And looking at pictures of it, phew, it doesn't even seem real. Imagine coasting along a tunnel in a boat, staring up at the walls speckled with lights resembling the Milky Way galaxy. An underground night sky. It's kind of like when you put those stars above your bed in your room as a kid. That times like a million. Glowworms make this beautiful bioluminescent light from a chemical reaction involving oxygen and luciferin. Fireflies also glow with the help of this very same chemical reaction. And as a side note, humans also use this chemical as a non-invasive way to visualize the inner workings of living organisms like lab mice. This method is called vivo imaging, and these mice are oftentimes injected with the water-soluble chemical that glows with the presence of oxygen, so they can see all the inner organs and inner workings of all the things. Science is cool, am I right? The beautiful glowing booties of the glowworm aren't just for a tourist show, however. Similar to how an anglerfish uses its fishing-like pole esca to lure prey towards it, these glowworms use their lights to hunt. Glowworms make fishing lines out of silk-like material that is dotted with sticky saliva urea blobs. <laughs> yes, urea, like the stuff found in urine. They regurgitate these globs from their mouth bit by bit, kind of like stringing a Mardi Gras bead. Yum. <laughs> these lines are then dangled from the cave ceiling and cast with the light from their glowing booties. They almost look like mini chandeliers glistening on the cave walls. 
Insects like moths in awe of their dazzling display while fluttering in the dark cave don't stand a chance and find themselves caught up in these beautiful booty lures. Side note, moths use light like the moon and stars to navigate, and with a cave ceiling looking pretty much like the night sky, they get disoriented and fly straight into the glowworm's trap. So it isn't so much of a, oh wow, shiny thing, I must touch. It's more like a, turn right at the North Star, wait, these stars are all different, and they're closer than I thought. Oh no, it's so sticky, and they get stuck in the webs and eaten up. The glowworm uses this moth navigational tool to its advantage. And I do think it's kind of weird because the glowworm maggot is the larva of a moth. So does it participate in cannibalism? Can it control what moths it catches? Does it know the secrets of a moth because it's a moth itself? Who knows? There are many mysteries lurking in the caves. Another cave creature that inspires a mysterious mysticaler, the Ulm. Yes, the very same creature I was talking about when I was visiting the caves in Sylvania. Finally going to talk about them. They are really interesting. So the name Ulm itself is fit for a mystical creature in a fantasy novel. It sounds like, you know, some wise sage that's going to give me a quest of some sort. In fact, when they were first discovered after heavy rains flooded the cave and washed up the Ulms from the underground, the local people believed they were cave dragon offspring. But, in fact, these little salamanders were a far cry from the giant, fire-breathing dragons terrorizing princesses in the castles of our favorite fiction. In reality, Ulms are quite small, slender, white salamanders with pinkish gills on their heads. Imagine an axolotl that has lost its eyes and then stretched to about a foot long. And to add to their mystical creature vibe, they're known to live for a pretty dang long time. It's estimated they can live up to a century, and the life of an ulm is a slow and steady one. It often takes them nearly 12 to 15 years to mature alone. Around the Postonia cave entrance were loads of gift shops and souvenirs dedicated to the ulms alone. I saw a few little kids clinging to ulm plushies, and with the cuteness of an axolotl, I did in fact purchase a sweater with an ulm printed across the front. I also needed a sweater because who knew that deep, dark caves were freezing cold, even with an extremely hot summer day at its surface. In these cold environments, the Ulm resides. Although it barely has eyes and the ones it does have are covered in skin, it makes up for it with a magnificent sense of smell, so good that an Ulm can find food in total darkness, which it has to do quite often in a cave. And because caves often have flowing water running through them, ohms have adapted to sense food even in a swift moving current. Though they can sense food like a bloodhound, it doesn't mean they eat a lot of it. Because food is so scarce, they have a slow metabolic rate and have fat storage in their tails and livers, which allow them to live on a scarce supply of food. As I've said before in this episode, caves aren't exactly pumping out nutrients. Something I found to be oh so adorable about the Ulm, they like to cuddle. Ohms are gregarious, meaning they hang out in groups and are fond of company. Studies show that when given a choice between an empty rock crevice or an occupied one, they will oftentimes choose the option with the cuddle partner. And they use that excellent sense of smell to find a good partner to share a nook with. And it isn't always necessarily a romantic partnership. They will cuddle up with a member of their own sex oftentimes, too. But when it finally is time for some hanky-panky, males aggressively guard territory and let it be known that they occupy a certain space. 
They use these guarded cuddle nooks as love dens, and they send out chemical signals to ward off other males looking for some action, like the scent equivalent of a do not disturb sign. And who can blame them? Females only lay eggs once every 12 and a half years on average, so there's only one day night a decade. This scent also attracts females to come visit a male's cave crevice. Males may mate with several females, but females tend to only have eyes for one male, if they did have eyes. <laughs> the courtship goes as follows. Getting a whiff of his scent, a female will visit a male in his little love den. The male will do a little tail wiggle dance towards the female, which guides the female to a spermatophore. She then picks up this package and fertilizes her eggs. The female will then leave to find her own little nook to turn into an egg-laying spot, and she will make herself quite at home there because she will start laying eggs in about two to three days and then keep laying eggs for a full month, producing around 70 of them that she lays within the crevices of the rocks. But her work doesn't end there. Mama Ulm guards her precious cargo as they incubate for 90 to 180 days. Like axolotls, Ulms are neotenous, which means they retain juvenile traits into adulthood. So when Mama Ulm's babies hatch, they look kind of like little versions of her and Daddy-O. But despite looking like a baby adult already, they won't sexually mature for another 15 years. See, I told you, life is slow for the little Ulms. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, so I've spoken about a few mystically lovely cave species, but I promised creepy, so don't worry. These next few are fit for nightmares. And some of the creepiest cave creatures I've ever laid my eyes on are whip spiders. I'm guessing they get their names from their extremely and ridiculously long legs that do indeed look a bit like whips, lashing out in front of them and feeling around for bare feet to snag, I bet. Their forearms are no less terrifying. They kind of look like lobster claws, but they've stepped it up a notch in the spiky hair department. And their legs, as expected, are in fact modified for use as antenna, like feelers that help them navigate their terrain. They will flail these antenna legs in front of them in search for unsuspecting prey. These long legs also allow for the spider to go into stealth mode and move more silently in the darkness, so you'll never hear one creeping up from behind you until it's too late. <laughs> and they say don't judge a book by its cover, but in the case of the whip spider, you should. Because it's said that their personalities match their fearsome look. When whip spiders encounter each other on the surface, it would often end in one of them being cannibalized by the other. But hey, 
Food is scarce, and a meal is a meal. Am I right? Surprisingly, though, whip spiders found in caves are a lot more gentler. They not only took longer to start a fight when they bumped into each other, they also fought a lot less. One theory for this is that because food is so scarce in a cave, why waste energy picking a fight with someone? I mean, it's dark in there. I'm sure they bump into each other all the time. This difference of personality between the surface and the cave-dwelling whip spider is an example of behavioral evolution, because it isn't always the outside that changes when environments force adaptations, it's also the inside too. So being in a cave has turned the whip spider into little softies, though still creepy looking. From losing a grumpy mood to losing an ear, cave critters have no need for all that extra stuff. Our next creepy cave critter is the cave cricket. With all of those echoing noises off the cave walls, sounds can be disorienting in a cave. Which direction did that echo come from, and is it coming from one source or many? To deal with all the noise confusion, some cricket species living in caves have gotten rid of hearing altogether and instead rely on feeling sound. Normal crickets pick up noise with something called a tympanol organ, which is a structure like an ear used to hear sound. But unlike an ear, it's not on their head, but instead an exposed drum on the side of its body or leg. Cave crickets don't have that. Instead, they use a subgenual organ, which senses vibrations from the ground. These are usually low frequencies. These organs are also found on the leg of a cricket, aka the cricket's tibia. Cave crickets use these leg-hearing things to find food and locate mates. This means they have no need for making sounds and don't make that distinct chirping like most other crickets do. So, if they can't play a leg orchestra, how do they seek out love in a seemingly lonely hollow? The males will send out those good vibrations and shake their abdomens to send sexy signals through the ground. When those lady cave crickets feel a male rumbling, time to do some tumbling. So, I know I keep saying cave crickets, but these little critters actually go by a lot of names. Some call them camel cricket. They get this name because of their arched back appearance. And also because of this, I'm tempted to call them Quasimodo crickets, but alas, I can't name them. <laughs> Another name it goes by, spider cricket, or my preferred way of saying it, spricket, because with its long legs, it very much looks like a mix between a cricket and spider. That, and they have a tendency of clinging onto walls much like a spider would. But upon closer inspection, one can see that it only has six legs, not eight. Aside from really long legs, cave crickets also have extremely long antennae, which look to be about twice the length of its body. These help them feel around in the darkness. These long antennae also act as a sort of trigger for a pretty terrifying defense strategy. When its extra-long antennae get a tingle of potential danger, the cave cricket doesn't jump away in fear. Oh no, it jumps towards the enemy. In this way, it hopes to startle its threat in the darkness. And I'm sure this will often scare any cricket-eating predator away. It's a good tactic. I mean, who would expect a meal to jump at you? And when I say jump, I more so mean fly. Not really, but kind of. Because the cave cricket is a monster jumper. They can leap 50 to 60 times their body length. That's like me, a 5 foot 5 person, or 5 6 on a good day, leaping almost the entirety of a football field. Now, despite their name, cave crickets don't always reside in caves. 
They prefer damp, dark, cool locations like caves, of course, but that doesn't stop them from making a home in your home. In fact, a lot of what I saw about cave crickets while researching them was how to get rid of them. Apparently, these long-legged buggers like to invade family residence and basements. So if you have a basement, beware what lurks in the shadows. Seeing the hole looks kind of like a monster spider slash habit of jumping at you when startled thing, it's easy to see why people aren't huge fans of cave crickets and why they get the creepy reputation that they do. Onward to another spooky, maybe not-so-understood cave inhabitor, bats. Now, I can go on and on about bats. I love bats. They are, after all, one of the most diverse of animals with over 1,200 bat species in the world, accounting for almost a fifth of all mammal species. And as much as I want to say about bats, I might save that for another episode about bats because... They're so remarkable. I love them so much. But because this episode is about caves, I more so want to highlight the role a bat plays and just how important bats are to a cave's delicate ecosystem. Now, since caves are nestled deep in the earth, away from the sunlight, the food chain relies not on chlorophyll-fed plants, but on organic matter brought into the cave, often in the form of bat droppings, or as Ace Ventura would say, guano. I feel like I've referenced that in a previous episode. Maybe it was the flight episode. Let me know. But it's honestly one of my favorite movies. You can understand why, because I love animals so much. Remarkably, bat poo sustains entire ecosystems in caves that wouldn't have them otherwise. Plus, if water's flowing in a cave, it can also bring this nutrient-rich fertilizer deeper into the cave to support other species. This useful supply of nutrients doubles down during the wintertime, when bats seek out caves to keep cozy during the chilly weather. All those cute little bats huddled together, hanging from the cave walls, convert their foraged insects, fruit, and yes, even blood, into nutrient-rich fertilizer. This fertilizer then rains down onto the cave floors— Now, this may seem like your worst nightmare, but for insects crawling amongst the famished conditions of the cave, this is paradise. Cockroaches, grasshoppers, mites, cave scorpions, and more eke out of the shadows and take part in the buffet. And where there are bugs, there are animals that like to eat them. One endangered species of frog, the Caucasian parsley frog, depends heavily on bat-occupied caves to get its fill off of guano-eating insects. The grotto salamander also depends on this insect-rich food source, and it's not only amphibians that benefit. The ecosystems bats create when residing in caves supports a hefty amount of species, and some of which have yet to be discovered. And that's because, very much like the ocean, There's still a lot we don't know, we need to learn, and we need to explore when it comes to caves. Out of all the caves we have found, I think in the U.S. there's only around 50,000 that have been discovered, it's said that there's less than 10% of the estimated total of caves left to be discovered in the world. So we really haven't left a dent. But back to guano, back to bat droppings. Did you know that guano also supported humans at a very crucial time of need? believe it or not. I'll get to why in a bit, but firstly, one of the biggest guano supplies known to man, the Brocken Cave Bat Roost in Texas. So this cave holds one of the largest bat maternity colonies known in the world. It's said to house 
15 million Mexican free-tailed bats. And with all those bats, the Brocken Cave produces a hefty amount of guano, with an estimated 50 tons of it on the floor of the cave. And yes, people have done the dirty work of trying to dig into the heap of guano to see just how deep it goes. And they say they've dug down 30 to 60 feet deep in some places and still haven't hit the bottom. So the full extent of the excrement is still unknown. So how does all of that guano help humans, you ask? Well, a chemist in the 1800s by the name of George Raines discovered that the same concentrated nitrates in guano that make it an excellent fertilizer can also be used to manufacture gunpowder. Bat guano is largely made up of saltpeter, aka potassium nitrate. This saltpeter was extracted and mixed with another not-so-good-smelling ingredient, sulfur, and charcoal to make gunpowder. This caused the value of the bat excrement to double in value and also caused hordes of people to raid bat caves throughout Texas mining for the stuff. So much of it was exported that it was the largest mineral export in Texas before oil was discovered. And seeing that the American Civil War was taking place in the 1860s, I'm guessing you know why it was so popular during that time. So it's safe to say that bats have done their fair share of keeping people in caves supplied with what they need. They also help control bug populations and pollinate a vast array of plants, which is why it's so important to protect them. White-nose syndrome has been a major concern in bat populations. The disease gets its name from the visible white fungus that accumulates around an infected bat's nose and wings. Unfortunately, the disease has caused massive mortality rates in bat populations, which has led to fewer nutrients flowing into the cave ecosystem that depend so heavily on them to survive. Scientists from around the world are currently working to help with a solution, but since there seems to be no cure, the best hope is to relocate bats to other non-infected roosting caves, which is why it's so important to maintain the beautiful caves that we do have. It's not only hope for bats, but caves house many other rare and unusual critters, many of which I spoke about today, but also so many more that are yet to be discovered. So if you happen across a cave or any other natural wonder, treat it with care. That's all for this episode of Little Curiosities. Caves are fascinating micro-worlds, aren't they? So cool, I really enjoyed researching them. They're stock full of creepy survivors. I mean, you have to be tough to survive the cave elements. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to Little Curiosities if you haven't already, and go ahead and leave a review while you're out there. I love to listen to them, like this one by SilkySilk412, who said, I love this podcast. As a lover of Little Curiosities myself, the podcast is amazing. I love the deep dives into random topics and things I've never even considered before. Listening is a great way to expand your knowledge bank and be exposed to different things. Thank you so much, Silky Silk 412 I'm so glad you love this podcast. And that it teaches you something new because honestly, with each episode that I research, I discover something new as well. And I'm learning as I'm making these. So it means so much for your support and everyone else out there listening to Little Curiosities. Please share this episode if you found it interesting with all of your friends who love caves and who want to have a little bit of spooky cave critter action during their Halloween season. Thank you so much. Until next time, ciao. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q-Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Alexa Gabrielle Ramirez. 
co-produced by Ellie Katopfish. Edited by Will Tendy. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.